In this episode, I'm going to discuss the stories of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. Listener discretion is advised, and please take care of yourself. I can try to string together some words to convey what it felt like to live in summer 2020, but I don't know if I can do it justice. COVID-19 had just been announced as a global pandemic, and Americans everywhere were sheltering in place. At SMU, when we left for spring break in March, we thought we'd be home for a week, but in-person classes ceased until August. We finished the semester at home, talking on Zoom. Then, the first video caught fire. Maude Arbery, a 25-year-old black man, is shown jogging through a predominantly white neighborhood. In the video, you can see a white truck obstructing Maude's path. As he attempts to continue his jog, Travis and Gregory McMichael, a former police detective and his son, fatally shoot him. As reported by the New York Times, one of the men responsible for Ahmad's murder is heard saying a racist slur. Then Breonna Taylor's death gained attention. She was shot by officers Brett Hankinson, Jonathan Mattingly, and Miles Cosgrove during a failed drug raid at the wrong apartment. Her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, called 911 for assistance, unaware that they were the ones attacking. Finally, there's arguably the biggest case. George Floyd is filmed suffocating to death on a concrete street in Minneapolis. Four officers kneeled on his back. Officer Derek Chauvin dug his knee into his neck for at least eight minutes and 15 seconds, according to the New York Times. What was George Floyd's crime? He was accused of spending a counterfeit $20 bill. All of this violence sparked a movement. It brought police abolition into the central conversation. It inspired many diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And it galvanized students to speak up. That fateful summer was a little over two years ago now. And while it's been an eternity, it's really been no time at all. But it's been long enough for us to forget. So today, we're going to take some time to remember, really remember, what it was like to be there. My name is Shara Jayaraja. I'm an SME Human Rights Fellow. And this is Maladjusted. There are some things in our nation and the world to which I'm proud to be maladjusted, to which I hope all men of goodwill will be maladjusted until the good society is realized. 2020 was heartbreaking, but the story the feelings, the fallout, quite simply, isn't mine to tell. 
Here's DeMarcus Allen and Layla Gully, the folks who originated Black at SMU in 2015. In the background, you're going to hear some chants from protests that took place in 2020. No justice! No peace! Fuck these racist ass police! No justice! No peace! My thoughts on George Floyd actually begin with Ahmaud Arbery. Um, and we found out about him late. He, he's one of the cases that almost ended up being one of the ones that we never would have heard of. Um, so we found out about Ahmaud in May, but he was actually murdered like two months prior. And so the reason Ahmaud is important to the response that I had to George Floyd dying um, at the hands of Derek Chauvin and the other officers that just stood idly by as the life drained from his body. Um, the reason Ahmad is important to me is because typically, and this is even sad to say, typically when black people are killed by the police with impunity <laughs> or just civilians, right, who think that you don't belong on this planet, um, freely, typically I shed a silent tear when Trayvon Martin died um, and all the memories of all the other black people, right? um, the Emmett Tills, uh, right? the, the, the Medgar Evers, um, even in downtown Dallas, um, there was a, a lynching right, of a black man by the name of Alan Brooks right in the middle of downtown. All those thoughts, all those memories, the, the, the trauma that comes with those it overtakes you. And so Ahmaud Arbery dying is the last time that moment when I learned about Ahmaud Arbery and the video was played over and over and over and over again. Uh, I didn't shed a tear. I was in such rage. I didn't shed a tear and I've not shared a tear since. Ahmaud Arbery dying will be the first time that I did not shed a tear that I've seen my people martyred on TV or on social media. And with that being the case, when I saw George Floyd, I, I didn't shed a tear. I, I didn't have the emotional capacity. I saw myself in George Floyd. I saw my, my uncle and my father and my grandfather in George Floyd. Um, and so I didn't shed a tear. I didn't have it. Um, and frankly, that part of me scared the hell out of me that I didn't have the own, my, I didn't, I didn't have the, the emotional capacity to, to just release with tears like I normally would. And they weren't a lot of tears, just a, one or two tears, just, just to show that there was some emotional like stimulus, like still left. Like, I, I didn't even have that. Um, so when George Floyd died and I saw that, Eight minutes and 46 seconds. His life drained from his body. No one, officer stood by and did nothing. And he said the same thing that Eric Garner said. I can't breathe. And cried for his mother, begged for his mother. I didn't shed a tear. And that, it broke something in me that I, I couldn't shed a tear. I couldn't force myself to shed a tear. Um, 
Police brutality is the sixth leading cause of death for black men in this country. We should be embarrassed by that. You know, it doesn't matter what color your skin is or who you love or who you worship. That should be alarming to you. And if it isn't, if it doesn't stir you deep in your soul to know that I could go to sleep tonight like Breonna Taylor and be shot to death in my home and over a hundred days later, one police officer might have been arrested. Well, I mean, that's a problem, you know, and you've got to understand that these are all issues that we take with us no matter where we are, whether it's on the college campus or it's on the boulevard or if it's at work, you know, I can't just take my blackness off to make the people around me feel comfortable. There are moments where I do feel pretty helpless and hopeless and, um, you know, it would be really nice as a black person in this country, and I'm only 26, if, you know, some of my white peers would come and take a little bit of this burden off of us and, and charge forward in this movement because I'm telling you, black people are tired. So I think we were all alerted to the the death and the murder, as it is, of George Floyd through social media. That's the voice of Professor Ray Jordan. He's historically led the SMU Civil Rights Pilgrimage. I have not watched the video in its entirety because I made a, a conscious decision not to. I don't know if most people understand the uh, the mental health ramifications, particularly for African Americans, when we see these videos over and over and over again. I saw how particularly brutal this image and this video and audio was. I made an intentional decision not to, to watch it because it's so incredibly difficult to just shake that off and then go back into the world with your peers and colleagues and the kind of the human family that have differing opinions about differing ideas, particularly around racial justice, and to be able to function like a professional. It's really difficult. I don't think people understand the mental health effects that, that uh, black and brown folks have on a pretty regular basis. What really captivated me was not the video, because to be quite honest, we've seen these kinds of images before. What captivated me, it, it just seemed to strike a nerve in so many people. I live in this space. I admittedly have to work not to be jaded because I teach civil rights history. I'm in the human rights space a lot. I'm in the racial justice space a lot. And I think a lot of other people that are in my position or do the kind of work that I do, organizing, activism, education, we're kind of, we, we stay on a 10. <laughs> we're always like in the fight. And it's been encouraging and inspiring to see such a wide diversity of the population rise in their social consciousness. And that is what brought me to the streets to protest and to be involved in a number of activities. At this point, the curfew has been enacted. 
And so the organizers of the group said, we need to move outside of the curfew zone. Making a conscientious decision to be law abiding, right? We want to play by the rules. So we go downtown, the Frank Crowley County Courthouse, which is on Riverfront, just outside of the curfew zone. We get there, I park in the parking garage, just trying to be law abiding, right? There's a rally for about two hours. I'm a speaker at the rally. It feels good. There was such a diversity of people, black people and white and Asian folk, Latinx folk, queer folk. I mean, young folks, old folks. It just really was a beautiful display of humanity. And so it's getting dark. At this point, I have my daughter and then my youngest son is with me this time. He's 16. I tell them, let's go home. It's getting dark. Let's go home. So there was a march that was planned, and we had not intended to be a part of it. So we go back to the parking garage to retrieve our car. At this point, the police have barricaded the parking garage. The officer said the higher-ups have said no one can leave the parking garage. No one can get their car until the protest is over. And I thought, well, that's odd. We're being held hostage. Why can't we just go home, right? We're not breaking any laws. I legally parked in a garage, paying my five bucks. Like, what's the big deal? So I say, well, we can't leave. So we joined the march. At that point, streets all over downtown had been blocked. We're on Riverfront, which is uh, just out of downtown. Off intersections, everything is blocked, except the ramp to the Margaret Hunt Hill Bridge. And the march turns, it enters the ramp. And as we're entering the ramp, and there's video of this on social media, we hear, keep it moving, keep it moving, keep it moving. No one says to us, don't enter, that's illegal, you can't go there, return. Remember, I tried to go home and was told I couldn't. And then we're told to keep it moving. So again, there's no traffic on the highway. I figured that they have blocked it for us because they're ushering us. The lights on the bridge go out. I'm so naive. I go, hmm, the lights have, have, have dimmed. Not completely gone out, but they flickered and then dimmed. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Then my daughter looks at me and says, Dad, we're on a bridge. That might not have been a good idea. You think they might travel? I didn't think anything about it. Within three or four minutes after she said that, we marched right into a line of police and riot gear who, without warning, began to fire upon us, tear gas, smoke bombs, which limit your visibility, rubber bullets. There's something called a flash bang, I think is what it's called, and it mimics the sound of automatic fire. So you're being tear gas, it's smoke, you can't see. You're on a bridge, for heaven's sake, so there's water to the left and to the right. The flashbang, you think you're being fired upon by automatic weapons, so you're, you're freaking out. We go to retreat and turn back. There's another line of police. They have done, I now know this technique is called kettling, and it's highly controversial. It doesn't de-escalate, it creates more chaos and violence and mayhem. So people are vomiting, they are having seizures, they're crying. One person's eye was put out. I was hit, thankfully, not in the face, but in the leg with a rubber bullet, so it didn't 
cause any lasting damage. Long story short, we are detained. We're all asking, what did we do wrong? Why are we being arrested? Uh, and I was, after about two hours on the bridge, I was the first group that they let go uh, after we had been sitting on the bridge with our hands cuffed behind us. And we were told, because I had a minor, my son was 16, they allowed us to, after taking our information. So I figured I'd get a citation in the mail. And so I left, and what was scary was they didn't let us go back. We had to keep walking in the middle of the night. This is like midnight at this point. And with nowhere to go. They said, well, take an Uber home. Get home and have the best you can. Thankfully, I had a friend who lives in Trinity Grove, and I called him and went to his apartment, and he called me an Uber to get home. But that was the, the trauma of that event. In some ways, it seemed like the world had turned upside down. In other ways, it seems like the mask had been pulled off. Let's bring it back to SMU, specifically in the context of Black at SMU. In case you forgot, the Black at SMU movement started with a hashtag in 2015. Black students tweeted about their experiences with racism at SMU, Black at SMU trended and got enough media attention for SMU to respond. In 2015, the Association of Black Students presented administrators with a list of tangible issues that they wanted SMU to address. And to be sure, Black at SMU in 2015 brought some changes. Most notably, SMU formed the Cultural Intelligence Initiative, also known as CIQ at SMU, to prompt conversation and spark intercultural engagement. Dr. Maria Dixon Hall spearheaded these efforts. My name is Maria Dixon Hall, and I'm the senior advisor to the provost for cultural intelligence initiatives. I'm very excited after a year of listening and traveling the country to pick up some of the best ideas. We at SMU continue on our journey. At its peak, CIQ at SMU administered diversity trainings on campus, and it also offered a platform for cultural student groups across campus to convene. However, some critiqued CIQ trainings for emphasizing the actions of individuals over the systemic issues that make SMU a comfortable place for the incidents shared to the hashtag Black at SMU. Further, some were concerned that CIQ seemed like a race-neutral response to a black student movement. Whether they're in South Wales or South Dallas, whether they are in Dubai or Detroit, look for more from us on this issue because we intend to be leading the rest of the herd. So by 2020, Cultural Intelligence Initiative was still the main administrative effort to combat racism on campus, and the dust had pretty much settled from the 2015 Black and SMU movement. But the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery set the movement in motion again. Then, there was a statement by R. Gerald Turner, president of SMU, that kicked students into high gear. The first sentence of the statement read, This is a painful time for our country again, as we grapple with the virulent and continuing threat of racism, as well as the violence that often mars legitimate mass public protest. 
He also went on to condemn, quote, those promoting anarchy, unquote, through violent protest. And many students, counting myself as one of them, were deeply disturbed that he equivocated murders committed by trained state actors or police and property damage that was aroused by public grief and outrage. We as a people, we've asked nicely for 400 years. I mean, let's be very clear about that. We've been asking, okay? All the people who were, they didn't like Colin Kaepernick kneeling, well, we were asking you quietly and nicely, and you didn't like that. Um, and so now when your beloved CBS is up in flames, it's really hard for me to feel um, upset about that because I remember being in college during Ferguson and watching the same images. And I remember a year or two prior to that when George Zimmerman was acquitted. And I remember a year or two before that when Trayvon Martin was shot. And I remember hearing stories about the Rodney King riots. I mean, how many times do we have to do this? Here's Lexi Quinton, who is the president of the Association of Black Students in 2020. <laughs> President Turner's first statement was like a fluff piece. He didn't really say anything of value to me as a black student and moreover as the president of Association of Black Students. I was disappointed but not surprised. It definitely was just another letdown um, from the university's efforts, specifically since they cited CIQ. Now, CIQ, um, for those who don't know, was Black ASMU to accommodate all of the minority groups on campus. Obviously, we work very closely with all the other cultural groups on campus. I go to their events, they come to ours. We have a very tight-knit relationship, but Black minority student problems are not Asian American minority student problems, are not international student problems, are not Hispanic student problems. We all have our own issues that are more representative of our communities. So when we're in those CIQ meetings, we just end up fighting for RGT's attention. RGT is a nickname for President Turner. And we're not interested in fighting with each other at all. To him citing CIQ was definitely just a seal on the letter that it was a cop-out to me because I feel like CIQ is a cop-out. And I will also cite that a minority majority putting us all in one group is racist. That's saying it's either whites or minority. It's a white or other, essentially. And that's just not the truth. I want to add some additional social context. Layla told me that she was experiencing that her white friends or her non-black friends were coming out of the woodwork to ask her, their one black friend, what to do next. And this was an overarching trend. Non-black people didn't know where to place their guilt, so they texted their friends questions, they expressed their shock about the treatment of black people in the country as if the person on the other line was unaware. People posted black squares on Instagram with captions like, I will never understand, but I stand. And basically, in characteristic fashion, we made it about ourselves. And yes, while we were showing our asses every day on social media, at least we were kind of paying attention. So this may be sort of needless to say, but hashtag Black at SMU trended in Texas in 2020. This was the second time the hashtag had trended since DeMarcus and Layla helped originate the movement in 2015. And naturally, DeMarcus and Layla were disappointed. There, there are some things that you hope to only have to do once or see once. Um, and Black at SME was, was that for me. <laughs> I hope to only 
have to do that once. I hope that anybody else would only have to. Like, I don't. I wouldn't. I never hoped that there would be a, you know, Asian at SMU. I, I uh, blanket SMU shouldn't be a thing. Yeah. It shouldn't blanket any university, right? Insert uh, insert identity at insert university or institution should be a thing. When I see that trending again, it honestly upsets me because what I see is additional work that's being put on black students to try to make the world around them better and to try to get their communities to accept them for who they are and then try to get them to go beyond just acceptance to supporting and you know having that institutional and systemic structure around them to really be successful and it's frustrating positive thing about this summer of social unrest and demands for more social justice and and reconciliation and so on is the fact that uh, more people understood. That relatively familiar voice is the voice of President Turner in an exclusive interview I conducted with him in the fall of 2020. You know, the, the events that happened were so uh, calloused that everybody thought, whoa, you know, I need to pay more attention to this. 2015 was kind of a, a movement in a very selected area, and it was very hard to get the kind of broad-based buy-in that occurred in the summer of 2020. So I'm going to go much more in-depth into President Turner's interview in the last episode of this podcast. So definitely keep an ear out for that. But President Turner kind of talks about the scramble that black students have remarked about before. Whenever there's an instance of racism, the people directly affected are the ones that are going to be tapped to help solve the issue. When things started happening in 2015 uh, and there were some social media comments and so on, I immediately told our vice president that I want to I want to meet with every African-American student that has an office in anything. <laughs> so almost this entire podcast is dedicated to talking about how cyclical racism and anti-racist measures can be at SMU. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish these cycles from true progress. So let's get really precise with it. In terms of broad events, what do these cycles actually look like? Let's break it down. First, something truly horrendous happens, whether that be a murder or a shooting, or more lately, an insurrection or something like that. SMU lies low. Then there's a generic response issued to the press by a person in a high place. That may be our president, that may be our dean of diversity or someone else. And they give this response on behalf of SMU, the institution, or SMU, the administration, or whatever it may be. There might be no public response to SMU's response, and that is the ideal scenario. We here at SMU don't love PR disasters. And maybe there will be a few ideas tossed around in a non-adversarial way. Let's have more diversity trainings, let's create new staff positions, Let's throw some money at different offices. These are all examples of responses that 
don't really meaningfully challenge SMU on a systemic level. On rare occasions, there is backlash to SMU's response or non-response to public events. So in the case of Black at SMU in 2020, Black students and other students of color were rightfully dissatisfied with empty words without action. Then there might be a response to the response's response. Now that you look bad, and now that we're calling you out, you're gonna say, oh, Black Lives Matter. If he said it in the second statement, guess what? He could have said it in the first statement. You could have just supported us from the get-go, but now you look foolish. And we are glad that he said it, but it definitely feels like you only said it now because you're trying to cover up your tracks. Then, as President Turner put it, he or someone in a high position may call a meeting with, quote, every African-American that has an office in anything. These are often the same people or factions that were part of the public backlash and systemic questioning that triggered action in the first place. Obviously, the hashtag Black at SMU trend on Twitter. I think what the most interesting thing about that was, it wasn't Black students who sit in the back of the room and don't speak. It wasn't Black students who aren't involved in the community. It was Black students who had recently won SMU Student Affairs Awards, who are heads of a lot of our organizations who sit in all of these meetings with RGT and and all the other admin. I think RGT thought it was these students who don't really speak up, but no, sir, it was the students who've been sitting right in front of you, disappointed for years. So not to belabor the point, but there's one layer of exhaustion. Students are burdened with proving that yes, their lives matter and their campus experience should be as positive as their white peers' experience. But on top of that, black student and faculty leaders are roped into tedious bureaucratic meetings. Many black student, faculty, and alumni organizations put forth demands lists to make their needs explicit and tangible. And that's already a lot of labor pre-meeting requests. When racial unrest arises, the president of the Association of Black Students is typically the one that gears up for a wave of work. In 2020, that was Lexi. Every day, someone will email me with an opinion, an idea, requesting a meeting, which I love it, thank you so much, but it's also quite overwhelming because not only am I one Black student, you know, we're not we're not a large group of students anyways, and this outpour, it is frustrating because a lot of students who are outpouring and saying, oh, I want to support, I want to be an ally, I've been in class with you, I've been in orgs with you, I've been in meetings with you for three years, you can bet anyone who knows me, anywhere I go, I will bring up these issues that have been plaguing the Black community at SMU. So you've heard me say these these very issues for years, but now all of a sudden you want to come and help me? I appreciate the help, and you can bet that I'll take the help, but I see you. So after 2020, CIQ was kind of in a fuzzy place. SMU didn't necessarily double down on it, but representatives of SMU also sort of referenced it as the crowning jewel of the 2015 Black at SMU movement. CIQ is actually sort of defunct now, it effectively doesn't exist. But President Turner assembled a group called the Black Unity Forum, or BUFF for short. And remember the demands lists coming from faculty, alumni, and student organizations that I mentioned earlier? All of their lists ended up getting sort of consolidated by Black Unity Forum. And when I talked to Lexi about the progress of Buff, 
She told me that that ended up having a sort of bottlenecking effect. So it kind of became up to these individual black students with a lot of responsibilities already to speak on behalf of their entire community. And of course, a lot of black students sort of got unintentionally disenfranchised in this process. And that effect to me was by no means the fault of black students or faculty that were on Black Unity Forum, but rather the way that Black Unity Forum was structured in the first place. So now, there's a question of longevity and sustainability. And this is where the final step of SMU crisis prevention comes in. See the turnover of Black student leaders and watch whatever efforts started sort of fade away. And President Turner acknowledges that that is what happened historically, and he hopes for something different to happen this time. They've got to set it up, their role on the Black Unity Forum, because one of the difficulties in working with student-led movement is every two years, the leadership, the whole leadership turns over because the juniors and seniors graduate, and so they have got to start with the sophomores in the first years and bring them along so that they are ready for these leadership roles when it becomes their time because it happens real fast <laughs> those two years and life is short but college life really is short and lexi said that being a student being an abs exec member whatever else may be on their plate that's kind of enough and even though Lexi spent a lot of her tenure trying to cultivate young students and teach them about institutional politics, there's a point where this all becomes a little bit too much. If it's already hard to staff executive boards of organizations, we'd have to have separate elections or something like that to fill those positions as well because it would be exhausting. I would not suggest to anybody to be president of ABS and co-founder for BUF at the same time. That's a lot of work. <laughs> It's not sustainable. Yeah, I mean, it always goes back to like, they're, they're just asking a lot of their students and they're going directly for answers and not really, not necessarily treading between asking and hiring people who are able to do this. And like, every day I am like, someone needs to be paying me. <laughs> yeah. Then at the beginning of the summer, and you know, through my four, three years prior, I was like, oh, I don't, you know, this is worthy work. It is work I will definitely do. This summer, watching my board and continuously asking my board to do extra stuff during their summer, you know, everyone was thrown back into home situations and it's not, you know, nobody knows what kind of situation you get thrown back into. So it was not correct of the university to ask us to take on that role without compensating us. And I think that they like to say, well, you know, it's not required, but there's a very, very deep level of, of duty and responsibility felt by a lot of African Americans across the country nationally. There's research on that psychologically that we feel a sense of responsibility to continue to push forward our agendas of equality and justice. So obviously, even if you didn't require us to do it, if we don't, who will? I said it before, I'll say it again, 
2020 was heartbreaking. To see these cycles of labor being placed on Black students was heartbreaking. This cycle of heartbreak, seeing these efforts crest and fall, is heartbreaking. I want you to take the time to sit with what Lexi said. If we don't do it, then who will? Who are you in this we? And what are you doing? True to form for this podcast, we're going to continue toiling with the nature of hope versus despair, reform versus abolition. After studying the cyclical nature of Black student movements at SMU, it's absolutely imperative to ask, are we going to do this again? Is it worth continually investing in these reforms, or does something seriously have to give? More on that coming soon.